The COVID-19 pandemic is, for most of us, a time we'd really much rather forget. The lockdowns, the fear, the uncertainty, sadly for some, of course, the loss of loved ones. It all felt very strange and new, but really it was anything but, as Simon Sharma explains in his new book, Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations. Humans have been through it all before, and we'll go through it again, maybe sooner than we might even imagine. Why then does humanity forget the lessons of the past in the face of such events? Well, Professor Sharma covers these questions and introduces us to some fascinating characters from the history of science and medicine who've tackled that monster question, how to rein in out-of-control disease. And I'm very happy to welcome him now. Simon Sharma, hello there. Uh, Hello, Geraldine. Look, I think many of us are familiar with your work associated most of all with the history of art and the Jewish people. What made you want to dig into the history of pandemics and vaccines? Well, it wasn't so such a bizarre swerve, I think, actually. Um, a lot of people have been scratching their head as uh, to why I've been doing this. A long time ago, um, I wrote a book called Landscape and Memory. And um, if I had to sort of pick one of my 20 books that I really felt I not to exit the world without having written, it would be that one. And the first sentence of Foreign Bodies, the new book, is, um, as you might or might not remember, says, in the end, all history is natural history. That earlier book was really about the cultural interface between our human habits and nature. And I taught a course on environmental history in America at Columbia with a, a now sadly departed friend of mine, Alan Brinkley. So it's actually been the the whole sense of actually the way in which the usual sort of history, we think about kings, revolutions, republics, wars, all those are very important things, but the sense in which they're often circumscribed by, as I say, what we've done to nature and what nature has done to us has actually been quite a long preoccupation of mine. And the the second, without rambling too much, Geraldine, the second big theme in the book is really about what we think of as foreign and hence the title of the book and what we think of as uh, properly belonging to our own particular patch of the world, homelands. And whether we like it or not, public health has become terribly politicised and issues of actually what to do for ourselves and how to defend ourselves from two kinds of foreign bodies, pathogenic microbes, and what in America and the United States is often thought of as some sort of Chinese conspiracy. That also kind of chimes in with a lot of the themes I've been brooding on for a long time. I can see that that lovely synthesis there. I mean, one of the biggest surprises for us here in, um, say, Radioland in Australia, trying to prepare programs during that amazing 2020, was mm. how little material was available to us, how few people had actually focused on these extraordinary events. You know, our whole life was turned upside down. There was very little art about it, for instance. It was as if once the crisis was over societies chose to forget very fast. It's a natural instinct, I suppose. I mean, when you go through a trauma, you do try and replace it with um, 
you know, that dreaded phrase, moving on, really. It takes a kind of rare kind of bird, I think. Maybe I'm one of them. Now, I'm an optimist, but I'm quite a sunny character. I think my family and friends will bear that out. But we are facing just a kind of cascade of troubles at the moment. It's very difficult, I think, to be a historian right now and not see in our ecological troubles, our biological troubles, the improbable nightmare of a, a war in Europe, which we thought would never happen again, not mm. since the disintegration of Yugoslavia, and not see it as a kind of real inflection mm. point for the fate of humanity. I think when you get to be a really old geezer, as I most certainly am, entering into what a writer friend of mine once called the springtime of senility, you don't have time <laughs> to muck around with Tudors. I'm not interested in Tudors and Stuarts and so on. It's absolutely great if people want to write that and people want to read that. That There's another kind of what is now fashionably called duty of care, I think. And historians since the beginning of the Western tradition, anyway, if you think about Thucydides writing his masterpiece on the Peloponnesian War, have been very engaged in trying to respond to contemporary events through the lens of the past, whether the immediate past or the remote past. You know, I, I don't want to sound uh, pretentiously civic, let's say, about this, <laughs> but I would feel very weird about not addressing history to these sorts of problems right now. And the biggest challenge to the civic world we would like to be in is what, based on what well, you've... I, I think I would, uh, you know, would add to what I just said. Um, unfortunately, you're probably thinking to yourself, he said enough already. But what I would add is that the way you kind of bring people into thinking carefully about what we're doing to the world is really not by sermonizing, but by telling stories. You know, human beings are storytellers. And so, and even if everybody isn't, is what I do for a living. And the, the book that's just been published is really a way of bringing people into a sort of sense of our fragility. We are at one and the same time, this is the paradox of human existence right now, um, creatures of staggering ingenuity and learned resourcefulness, the kind of animals that can come up with a vaccine in absolutely record time. And um, mm. this is, you know, prodigious and more extraordinary than it has been, you know, for centuries, really. But we're at the same time a kind of cartload of primitive prejudices and hysterias and fears and anxieties. And we don't have time let the second version of what humans are like really make it impossible for the first kind, the producers of ingenious solutions, to just um, fail in their task or give up or well, be defeated. Well, that that is a perfect segue to one of the great stories you tell in your book. You introduce us to the hero of your book, really, Valdemar Hafkin, yeah. a Jewish-Ukrainian yes. microbiologist from Odessa. Really, he encapsulates exactly w what you're talking about, very up-and-down yeah, relationship with does. the British Raj in India over his vaccines, and an immense right. sort of um, hero, but he, he doesn't end well. No, it doesn't end well. I mean, he does two things which are thought impossible. He creates vaccine against cholera. Cholera, which was the great killer of the 19th century, required um, decontamination. It, was, you know, it arose from fecally contaminated water. Still does, of course. And it was thought impossible to really have a vaccine against it by using live cholera pathogens in limited dose. 
But he succeeded in doing that at the Pasteur Institute in France and then took it to India. He knew the only way you would actually demonstrate its effectiveness would be through... This is in the 1890s, is it? In the 18... Yes, that was in, absolutely. Uh, Hafke knew that because cholera was fading, ebbing a little bit in Europe, you needed populations, and he only worked with people who volunteered to be vaccinated, who you could produce what's now called randomized comparative trials. In other words, you have 200 people, and person A gets the vaccine, person B doesn't, and then you can quite clearly demonstrates, you know, whether the vaccine's effective. He does the same thing with bubonic plague. We, we forget, we think rightly, that bubonic plague is a medieval disease, the Black Death, as indeed it was, and that it never really came back. But between 1894, 5, and the 1920s, it killed more than 20 million people. It was in Asia, almost entirely in Asia. Though it did touch down in Australia and New Zealand briefly. Yes, it did. Say. And so Hafkin does this. He sets up the first mass production facility for producing vaccines against plague in Bombay, as it was then called. So he is very briefly celebrated, particularly in Britain, as a great kind of pioneer and a great hero. But because he's Russian, Ukrainian, and there's a neurosis, really, among the British ruling class, really, both in Britain and in India, that the Russians are poised to invade India. And he's Jewish, and he doesn't have a medical degree. He's a phenomenal scientist. He's he a microbiologist, isn't he? He's a microbiologist, mm. exactly. So while the powers that be, particularly in Western India, are desperate for some sort of solution that would avoid the backlash, which was very, very violent and very threatening to British power, that happened when whole streets were demolished, as it was thought, to get rid of... Um, the plague or families were separated into segregation camps. And the vaccine, of course, provided a completely different way. They finally let Hafkin set this facility up. But there was a lot of arm's length and, you know, a lot of nose holding. And this cost him dearly that in 1902, one small village in the Punjab called Malkawal, 19 people died of tetanus poisoning from a contaminated batch of Blay mm -hmm. vaccine. And Hafkin immediately got the blame. He was fired. His career was broken. What had happened, as Hafkin knew, the contamination could not have happened at the manufacturing facility because if tetanus had begun there, it took like two to three weeks to get to the village, a horrible, stinky odour would have occurred when the top of the vaccine flask was opened and nobody had smelled anything at all. So Hafkin knew that a terrible kind of miscarriage of justice had happened. And it took five years for some another great scientist who I talk about in the book, Ronald Ross, um, to take his case up, and he was completely vindicated. But rather tragically, his kind of mojo had gone. I mean, his will to be an absolutely extraordinary, pioneering, brave, disciplined scientist had actually been broken, and that was kind of mm. the end of him. A it is, it is a tragic story. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, it's very sad. Um, it is amazing. Uh, just let me tell listeners, I'm speaking to Sir Simon Sharma, whom you may even recognise his voice here on Saturday Extra, and we're talking about his new book, Foreign Bodies. Look, before vaccines existed, 
the way to protect against diseases like smallpox was inoculation, which which seems to, right. uh, um, not from <coughs> Edward Jenner, it actually originated in the Ottoman Empire with the Turks. And it's very much a leap of faith, uh, very counterintuitive, as you say, to take yeah. a bit of infected pus and have it injected into one's body. I'm yeah. really interested to know, how does it eventually become accepted practice in Europe? Because there was huge amounts of suspicion at first, weren't there? Yeah, there certainly was. I mean, exactly as you say, Geraldine, it, it was a huge leap of faith. You had to believe, really, that by giving yourself the disease, you would actually bring on a very mild version of it. It wouldn't kill you. At the time, we're talking about the early 1700s, it killed one in six people who caught smallpox. And even if you survived, you were likely to be horribly disfigured. The, the, the scars and scabs would be all over your body, but particularly in you know, your face. And uh, it was a kind of terrifying prospect. When, in fact, this extraordinary woman, who was the wife of the British ambassador in Constantinople, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, a published poet, she was a very brave and formidable and articulate woman, She'd gone through a horrifying experience of the infection herself. She had been a famous beauty. She ceased to be a beauty after smallpox. She'd lost her brother, who she was devoted to, to smallpox. But she notices when she's in the Ottoman Empire that everybody, but particularly she notices the women, are completely seem to be untouched, have no scars and scabs or disfigurements at all. So she makes inquiries, and she knows that two Greek doctors, Timoni and Pilarini, had actually sent uh, the first reports of inoculation to the Royal Society in London. So there's a kind of foothold for her. She inoculates her six-year-old son when her husband is away with the Sultan of Turkey in a different city, and I think that's significant. I'm not sure mm. uh, he would have let her do this. And then when she goes back, it's very successful. When she goes back to England, she inoculates her three-year-old daughter. What is really... And she's immediately attacked by people who say... It's interfering with God's judgment. God is the arbiter of life and death. He will decide who dies, who lives, who's disfigured, who's not. So the clergy attacker, and somebody says something which you can sort of understand, said, why would a mother inject poison into the body of her own perfectly healthy child? And the answer is, you know, because she understood, even though there was no understanding of the way the immune system worked, she empirically saw that this had actually saved lives and saved bodies and faces. So she became a propagandist. What is really extraordinary is that she converts the then Princess of Wales, Caroline of Ansbach, who becomes queen to George II in 1727. And once, really, she's converted members of the royal family, the, the queen, or the Princess of Wales, as she was then, actually practiced inoculation on her own children. So it's an enormous moment for the press what is extraordinary is that these two women, it's very important that, you know, these two women at a time really when you might suppose men would just actually not take them seriously, were absolutely confident, very clever, very learned, and amazingly brave to withstand all the onslaught of attacks that, that came their way. It still took another 20, 30 years, another couple of generations for it to catch on, but the breakthrough had been made. 
I'm hopping through because I'm bringing up to the present. You say that there's always an intersection of medicine and politics and that we rather overlook this and particularly acute at a time of a pandemic or or of a a big epidemic. And obviously Anthony Fauci, I suppose, in the US was at the core. He was another version of your Huff Keen and maybe even your Lady Montague, I suppose. Fauci was a very important defender of the absolutely indispensability of um, vaccination. It was thought originally that to prevent transmission, it's been shown, I don't know, but did, did, did you catch COVID, Geraldine, and were you vaccinated? I did, I did, kind of, I did. Yeah, well, me too, me too, I caught it twice. And we know that vaccination didn't necessarily prevent transmission, but we also know absolutely with a very hardcore element of statistics that it had a dramatic effect on its lethality and the severity of the disease. So I hope you didn't suffer too much. I certainly didn't. No, I didn't. Um, and so and it, was, what, that's what astonished me that people couldn't see. Right. The, it astonished me right. that people somehow chose to be more frightened of the vaccine than of yeah. the, uh, of, of the virus. <laughs> Well, I mean, we have two, we have a candidate running for the nomination of the Democratic Party in the American elections next year, who's running precisely on the notion that vaccines are poisonous, namely Robert Kennedy Jr. And I thought he was a joke candidate, but at the time of the the coronation, actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who's bureau chief of the New York Times in London. Um, He said, no, no, it's not a joke at all. He's getting money. He's getting the usual regrettable celebrity and Endorsements, Susan He's Sarandon, getting twenty percent of others. the vote of the Democrats. He's getting twenty percent of <laughs> exactly. You've noticed, yeah. So he's actually a very serious threat. He could he could swing the election to Trump. You know, he could do what Ralph Nader did. So people are listening to him. So what, what is that? What thought, is that, Simon? What what is that? It's the web. Um, there's not, not much we can do about it. What is the sorry? What is the the impulse in people to opt for some when they've oh, so many of them have survived because of vaccines? Um, what is the well, impulse to believe somebody who who hangs on to every conspiracy theory that well, is going? Uh, I mean, when I, when I say the web, what I meant was is the web has encouraged. Uh, people actually to suppose first of all not to do much homework but you know if you just actually get mm, social media and somebody tells you that bill gates is actually inserting 5g chips into your arm under the guise of vaccines and you say don't be ridiculous they will say to you that's just your opinion mate you know so it's the sovereignty of opinion the victory of opinion over knowledge has something which the web you know you wouldn't want to take the web away but has aggravated in ways which i think those of us who greeted the web with euphoria failed to anticipate the echo chamber effect has been very very destructive and you know in the face of all these terrible problems which the world is facing. Conspiracy theories are comforting. They explain everything. Simon Sharma, it's been lovely to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. The historian Sir Simon Sharma, his new book is titled Foreign Bodies. It's a Simon and Schuster publication. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.